Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. Well, our scripture reading for today comes from John chapter 21, and it's verses 15 through 19. And I have here my ongoing project with my marigold, so I'm going to give it a little bit of water. And then we'll read from John 21, verses 15 through 19. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, Feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Well, the marigold, as we have been saying, and you can see some behind me on the piano, is an ongoing metaphor we're using in this series. It is a picture of the Holy Spirit's work in us to bring forth new life, this new life that is made possible by the resurrection of Jesus. So a few weeks ago, I planted my marigold in this pot. Many of you have done the same. I've gotten pictures of yours. I've gotten suggestions for mine, all sorts of things. Uh, last Sunday, I, I've told you this has been a struggle. Not much is happening. I'm actually, I don't know if you can see this, but if you look way up here, right there, there's actually a little green sprout that has started to climb up out of the soil. Why in the world it's way over here, I've got no idea. I planted it right in the middle Somehow it crawled to the side. Some people have suggested it's trying to escape my black thumb. That very well could be. But I wanted to give you an update on this whole thing. Uh, last Sunday, one of you, very unkind, someone who lives near me, I'll give you their name in a minute. You can go toilet paper their house tonight or tomorrow. But I got home last Sunday. I pulled into the driveway. There was a cardboard sign out in front of my house, and all it said was, Free the Marigold. So I just found that hurtful. Uh, Joe and Grace Rich, so look them up and uh, toilet paper their house. That'd be my suggestion for a Christ-like response. This growth process, certainly in the case of my marigold, very slow. Uh, most of the time so far, I've had to be confident something is happening, even though I haven't been able to see it happening until a few days ago when this green sprout came through the surface. As I said, I've gotten lots of input on how to make this grow, lots of pictures of how uh, yours are growing. Someone actually sent me through Amazon, not a link, but the actual thing, this kind of moisturizing thermometer thing. I've never seen it before. It tells, apparently, the water content of the soil. 
It's a great tool. Unfortunately, I have no idea what to do with it. But the good news, as I said, is that even my marigold here is beginning to show signs of visible, visible growth, and I can actually see that something has indeed been going on beneath the surface because now it's starting to come up through the surface. And this is the ongoing metaphor of what we're talking about in this series, this idea that the Spirit does things in us, works in us to cultivate the resurrection life that Jesus now offers us and to bring forth in our inner world new things, things that reflect his goodness and his glory. And when I think of today's subject in particular, this fledgling marigold is a really good image to keep in mind because today we're talking about God's spirit transforming our failures into forgiveness. And today, failure is being used to refer to those things that we have done wrong, things we regret, sins we've committed. Not talking today about failure as in a business that failed or an idea that failed. We're talking about the Spirit of God moving in us from living under the pain, moving us from living under the pain and the shame and the guilt of our sins and our failures and helping us to begin to live in and experience the freedom of God's forgiveness. And I realize this may sound a bit like a glossy brochure for a one-hour seminar where four easy steps will chart the course to living in the freedom of God's forgiveness for $29.99 plus shipping and handling or your money back. But in reality at least for me, my lifelong experience with failure and forgiveness has moved at about the pace of this miracle, very, very slowly. My experience with failure and with the sting of my failures, moving and growing toward the freedom of forgiveness has moved incredibly and incrementally slow. See, for some of us, failure has big barbed hooks and they sink in pretty deep. They're hard to remove and they're painful and they leave a nasty, a nasty mark. And so these failures linger. Sometimes they paralyze. Sometimes they haunt us long after they're behind us. And we want to take a look at all this today. In the story of the resurrection, Mary Magdalene ran to tell Peter and John about the empty tomb. And Peter and John were not just, you know, any two disciples of Jesus. They were, along with James, part of Jesus' inner circle. They were in his close circle of his best friends. And Peter was the guy, as we know, who failed at the crucial moment of his life. He failed at the crucial moment of his life. Remember, before uh, his betrayal on Thursday at the Last Supper, Peter announced that he would stand with Jesus even if it meant losing his life. Peter was often the one, one of the first ones, to express his lofty intentions. But as we know, he lost his nerve in the crucial moment, and he denied knowing Jesus to save his own skin. And it seems likely that ever since his betrayal on that Last Supper Thursday night, it seems likely to imagine that Peter's been drowning in his failure and drowning in his guilt, and drowning in his shame. So let's talk a bit about faithfulness and failure. There's no doubt Peter authentically burned with a fire to love Jesus and serve him. I mean, it's all over the pages of the New Testament. 
But Peter's words frequently exceeded his will's capacity to live them out. More simply, his walk couldn't keep up with his talk. And unfortunately, I know the feeling quite well. I think Peter and I would have been good friends. I've always liked Peter. I relate very well to his tendency to talk about how faithful he planned on being. And I relate equally well with his failure to actually be faithful. So I connect with Peter. Because he turned his back on God, he knows the burden of guilt, the dagger of shame, and the agony of regret over past failures. And I would simply ask us all, who among us doesn't know those dynamics? Failures of many sizes and many shapes that we are the author of. A hurtful word that crushes the soul of someone we deeply love. An outburst of anger when we don't get something we want. Withholding ourselves from another person to try to pay them back for something they've done to us. An Olympic level self-absorption that turns other people into pawns on our chessboard. Trusting in ourselves or trusting in our politics more than we trust in the living God. In these pressure cooker days of isolation, you know this as I do, where we have been confined to home with people closest to us, these may be days when we're seeing things erupt out of us, where we're actually authoring some fresh failures in the pressure cooker of these days. Perhaps anger has flashed during this time. Or there's been growing impatience with our children. Maybe too much booze has been consumed. Too much TV has been watched. Not enough scripture has been read. Not enough prayers have been prayed. And perhaps in these days that for some of us are a tad less congested, perhaps failures from the past keep surfacing within us and haunting us and burdening us in the present. Like Peter, most of us are a mixed bag, whether we want to admit it or not. The desire to love God and do what is right and good burns in us, but we don't always do what is right and what is good. And I realize some of us prefer to think faithfulness and failure are two distinct options we have before us many times in the course of our lives. And the choice between these two distinct options is always ours to make. And I want to say this in one sense, this is actually true. Those, that choice is there. But one of the wonders of the biblical story is its resemblance to the way real life actually happens. And Peter is a marvelous example of the thin, jagged line between faithfulness and failure. He loved Jesus. He followed Jesus. He sacrificed for him. And on the night Jesus was betrayed, arrested, and sentenced to death, Peter betrayed Jesus. Faithfulness and failure mixed together in Peter's life, in my life, these seemingly contradictory realities on display in one's life. And if you can't relate, I would strongly suggest you just exit this live stream and watch Ozark or a documentary on Watergate, because this is just going to be a waste of your time if you can't relate to this. In my experience, it is quite common for people to carry around the lingering burden of a failure. Something happened or didn't happen. Something was said or not said. Something was done or not done. And the shame 
and the guilt and the burden lingers even after we've asked God for forgiveness and even after we've asked others for forgiveness. So where do you carry this kind of burden? Where is a past failure still shaping you? And here's what I mean by shaping you. A past failure still drives decisions in the present. I simply want to say our risen King Jesus has power to free us from the burden of those failures. Let's talk about God's stake in our restoration. Do you realize God cares about you? Do you realize God actually cares about your life and how you are using it and how you are living it and how you are spending the hours he has given you on this planet? God actually cares about that. He cares about who you are becoming. He cares about the way in which you are manifesting his shalom, his goodness through your words, through your actions, through your responses to others in this life. See, his redemption story is a wide sweeping narrative of God restoring all of creation so that it is the way it was intended to be. And those who have put their confidence in Jesus Christ are in that story. And God has a stake in our restoration. Like our restoration, the transformation of our inner being matters to God. God is not an idea. He's not a machine. He's not a detached deity who is checking off boxes from a distance. He is a personal being with the characteristics of a person. He came to the world, died for the world, and rose again to restore the world and make it new and make it whole and make it good again, and he's doing this very thing in us as well. So the context of our scripture reading from John 21 is breakfast on the beach with Jesus. And what is happening here is a beautiful picture of Jesus' response to Peter's failure. After breakfast, Jesus pulls Peter aside for a conversation, a conversation intended to restore Peter. And I don't think there is a soul that has ever existed that does not long for restoration. It's such a word of flourishment. It's such a word that opens up possibility and gives us a sense of hope. I don't think there's ever been a soul that has existed that has not longed for restoration. It may have had different names. It has had different names. There are many avenues pursued to find this restoration, and many of the avenues pursued cannot find the restoration we're talking about. But we long for restoration. We long for the fractures to be healed or to begin to heal. We long for the burdens that just press down on our soul to begin to lift. We long for freedom. We long to be in good standing. We long to be in right relationship. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? What is Jesus asking Peter? Probably saying, do you love me more than the rest of these disciples? One commentator describes the impact of this question to Peter by saying, Jesus' initial question probes Peter to the depth of his being. This is the first conversation these two have had since Peter's betrayal. At least it is the first recorded conversation between the two of them. So let me ask you something. Given the magnitude of the betrayal that Peter 
put forth against Jesus, how would we approach a first conversation with the one who had betrayed us? How would we go about it? What would our instincts be? What would our default be in that first exchange? Well, let me say this from our story. Jesus is not in any way repulsed by Peter's failure. I think it's good to sit in that for a second. He's not put off by Peter's failure. He's not in any way disgusted with Peter. Again, it's good to sit here. First conversation after this betrayal has happened. Jesus is not screaming at Peter. He's not rubbing Peter's nose in his failure. Jesus asks Peter three times the same question. Do you love me? Sound familiar? Three times? Clearly, Jesus is helping to free Peter from the burden of a three-part betrayal. Denied him three times. So now express love three times. It's a restoration experience. Jesus' response to Peter's failure is to ask him the question, do you love me? The first conversation these two are recorded to have had after Peter's betrayal, and Jesus asks him the question, do you love me? I don't know where to put that. When I think about responding to hurt, responding to betrayal, I don't know where to put the question, do you love me? See, this is a kingdom response to sin and failure, and it is upside down from how we would imagine God responding to sin and to failure. Do you love me? Sin should generate a kind of fear of the self, a horror, if you will, about our capacity for self-absorption. It's good when our sin generates this kind of self-awareness. There's no whitewash here in this story of Peter and Jesus. There's no gray out. There's no glossing over what happened. There's actually grace here. There's grace in the discovery of our sinfulness because it brings us more quickly to the end of our self-sufficiency. And Jesus walks right into the middle of Peter's brokenness and failure, right into the middle of it. And he says, let's have a talk about this. This is the authenticity of God. He cares deeply about you and about me and about our lives. He loves us infinitely. He's a personal God. So he walks right into the middle of our failures and of our sins. There's a Jewish theologian. His name was Abraham Heschel. He's a brilliant uh, writer and scholar. Not a Christian guy. A Jewish theologian. So he was versed in the Old Testament. He knew the Old Testament. He was a scholar of the Old Testament, and he wrote a book called The Prophets. Amazing Jewish look at the prophets of the Old Testament. And he writes this in his book, God is engaged to Israel and has a stake in its destiny. The predicament of man is a predicament of God who has a stake in the human situation. Sin, guilt, Suffering cannot be separated from the divine situation. The life of sin is more than a failure of man. It is a frustration to God. Thus, man's alienation from God is not the ultimate fact by which to measure man's situation. The divine pathos, the fact of God's participation in the predicament of man, is the elemental fact. Such a beautiful image. God is engaged. To Israel. It's not language we're 
all that familiar with, maybe not all that comfortable with. God has a stake in Israel's destiny. God loves his people. He wants what's best for you, for me, for us. This speaks not of a legal contract, but it is the language of love and relationship, the language of an eternal bond that no failure can shatter. Let's talk about these two important words we find in Mark's gospel related to the same story, and they're the two words, and Peter. So I want to kind of cycle back to Peter's situation, Peter's condition, what's happening with Jesus and Peter in John 21, because this so profoundly and powerfully confronts our picture of God and our self-perception and our self-understanding. In Mark's account of the resurrection, in uh, Mark 16 and verse 7, the angel says, See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples, then these two words, and Peter. He's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And those two words, and Peter, is really the essence of this message. I don't have to work very hard to imagine Peter off on his own since his betrayal. Unable to quiet the disappointed voices of the condemnation committee that has convened inside his head. I imagine when the women found Peter on Resurrection Sunday and told him Jesus was risen from the dead and that he and the others were to meet him in Galilee, I imagine that Peter never lifted his eyes from their stare. I wouldn't be surprised if he took another swig of his scotch, even though it was in the early morning. I wouldn't be surprised if Peter simply mumbled, I'm sure not me. But the hope that must have surged when those women declared, no, he specifically asked for you to be there. And Peter, wait a minute, maybe there's a possibility this fracture can be healed. Maybe there's a possibility this relationship can be restored. Maybe my failure is not the final word. Maybe my failure and my failures are not, in fact, who I am. Maybe this brokenness doesn't have to be permanent. And Peter, and Mike, and you. And here's why this matters. We have a strange way of becoming attached to our failures and even to our sins and to the burdens and the pain and the shame and the guilt these failures and sins create. We become attached to these things, meaning we end up in a strange sort of way defining ourselves in part by these things. So believe it or not, we sometimes end up needing our failures and our sins because we find some degree of identity in those things. And we end up relying on these things. And in spite of what we might say, we don't want to lose these things because we won't know who we are if we lose these things. So our brokenness becomes a source of our identity. It becomes who we are. It's like a career criminal who spends many decades in prison and gets accustomed to the routine and the structure of prison life. I'm an institutional man now, as Red says in the Shawshank Redemption. This is who I am now. I've come to adjust to all of this. This is what I'm talking about, getting attached to these things. Attached then, for example, to our anger. Or to the fact that sometime in the past we committed some sort of sexual sin. We get attached to 
our chronic fear, that we're always living in fear. And we get attached to that and we learn to live with that. We become institutionalized around our fear and everything in our life is shaped by this fear in such a way that if we were to remove the fear or in our language, if the fear were transformed, we wouldn't actually know who we were and we wouldn't actually know how to live. We get attached to being controlling of others, even though our control has damaged others. We get attached to it. We learn to rely on it. And we can say the same about shame. This is where I have personal experience with this, where getting attached to my shame and thereafter, the shame becomes a friend slowly but surely because the shame keeps me from having to pursue things I don't want to pursue because I can always play the shame card as my out card. And so on we could go. And Peter has echoed for 2,000 years to remind us then that there is no failure, there is no sin beyond the reach of God's grace or beyond his resurrection power. So we don't have to live in the prisons of our past failures. We don't have to live in the prisons of other people's past failures. See, Jesus in John 21 is inviting Peter to live in the freedom of his forgiveness. It's the expansion of, and Peter, do you love me? There's life on the other side of these sins and of these failures. They don't actually define you. You don't have to live under their burden. Nothing is beyond the reach of God's grace or beyond his resurrection power. So let's go finally and talk about accepting forgiveness. Accepting God's forgiveness has been one of the hardest things for me to learn. And I'm still learning it. And I wish this worked like a light switch. Jesus forgives me. Oh, great. Switch on. Shame gone. Guilt gone. It just doesn't work like that. At least it hasn't for me. Especially, I think, because Jesus is not into checking boxes. He wants to bring, rather, his resurrection life into us right now and free us. And this is just a more involved process. So I find myself reflecting on this story of Jesus talking to Peter and probing into Peter's depths to release him from the prison of his failure. Jesus wanting to set this guy free from the weight of his failure. And so often in my life, when I step back and reflect on it, my unworthiness, there's the shame again, is perhaps one of the biggest sticking points that make it hard for me to actually accept God's forgiveness. The failures of my life, in other words, words, weave together to form an identity as a failure. So I sometimes come to this whole notion of God's forgiveness and I get stuck in my unworthiness and in my shame and I really kind of just camp there and that's part of what makes it hard to just embrace God's forgiveness and accept it. Another sticking point is this idea of a God who is angry about our sins and failures. Like angry as in red-faced. Like, I'm going to hunt you down and get you for this kind of angry. And I just have to say, for me, God who's got a red face, who's stomping his feet, who's furrowing his brow and out to get me, does not beckon me to come near to him. So how do we grow in living as those who are forgiven? How do we see sprouts of new life come into our inner life so that shame and all these other things give way to the freedom of forgiveness? Well, in this story of Peter and Jesus, I'm struck deeply by Jesus' love and generosity toward Peter. 
Jesus' way of dealing with Peter is soaked in love and soaked in generosity. He comes to this broken and guilt-ridden man, not recounting what happened, but he comes to this guy with love and generosity. And when he asks Peter, do you love me? Peter answers all three times by saying the same thing. You know that I love you. And so this journey of living in the freedom of forgiveness is a journey of experiencing first the magnificent, one-of-a-kind, impossible to articulate love of God for people like you and people like me. Like, this is the starting point, not our unworthiness or shame. The starting point is this magnificent love of God. It's not human love times 1,000. It's not a parent's love for their child times 10,000. God's love for you and for me is unfathomable love. Love of another kind. It is love that consumes our sin, and our failure. It is love that sets burdened people free in a way that can be experienced but can't hardly be explained. So I think accepting God's forgiveness, becoming a person in whom the new life of a forgiven person begins to grow, really takes a stride toward happening when we recognize and begin with God's extravagant love and generosity. And we recognize the Ann Peter, the Ann Mike, the and you part of the story. And this brings us to the communion table. This brings us to this wonderful celebration that we partake of around here once a month to remember these things, to remember the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ, to remember this magnificent, extravagant, impossible to explain, love of God that flows to us from the cross and from the empty grave and says, you are my beloved sons and daughters. And we come to this table in the knowledge of this. So the Lord's Supper is a meal for those of you who are followers of Jesus Christ. And our desire is to share this meal together, to eat the bread, all of us, Together, and I'll lead us in that. To drink the cup, all of us, together, and I will lead us in that. You may not be ready or may have forgotten it was Communion Sunday, so I encourage you to grab whatever's near, some bread, some juice, some chips, some salsa. Yeah, maybe not the salsa, but whatever is nearby that can function as your uh, communion elements. And we're going to enter into a time of preparing ourselves to come to the communion table. Manuel mentioned this earlier. We'll have a few responses to an abbreviated communion liturgy. They're in your app. And so I would encourage you to pay attention to that as we go. And I invite you to bow your heads at this point. And let's give a moment of silence as we prepare ourselves to come to the Lord's table.